I wanted to do something different. I wanted to do something that would really add value and really bring that authenticity to sales. And so that's where we started to come up with this idea for the sales engagement platform. It really came from this old data product. From Dogpatch Advisors, it's Ground Truth, a podcast about company builders, leadership, and how operators use data to build the future of sales. I'm Mercy Bell, and on today's episode of Ground Truth, we talk to Kyle Porter, co-founder and CEO of SalesLoft. He tells us how he's managed to evolve and rechart his course time and time again to become one of the most influential voices in the world of sales. Kyle Porter has led a life of extremes. He spent much of his childhood in the hospital battling health problems. He had trouble with authority and nearly flunked out of college. He prioritized his social life over studying and attending classes. But when Kyle caught the entrepreneurship bug, he threw himself in headfirst. After several failed attempts to start his own business, he finally figured out what he had that other people needed. Then he tore it down and built it all back up again. But Kyle's story begins in Atlanta. He was born with a rare blood disease and was not expected to live past infancy. He spent the first 11 years of his life in and out of the emergency room. When he wasn't in a hospital, he was relegated to his own bed. Doctors and nurses would hook him up to immunity drips at home to help fight the infection. It wasn't until age 11 that he experienced what he calls an uncharacteristically good run of health. The doctors pronounced that he could build up and produce his own blood cells, and he was now able to do what other kids his age were allowed to do. Kyle says his childhood made him who he is. He fought bitterness and resentment as he was forced to stay inside while his friends could run around and play sports. He developed insecurities as the sick kid at school. But there was something else that grew in him as a result of his disease. A fighter's mentality. Something that would hurt and help him over the years. The other piece of it was that I was always fighting. So I would wake up fighting the doctors, fighting my parents. It was kind of me against authority for a little while there. But at the end of the day, I think it created a really lot of grit and uh, a lot of positivity because even through those times, I was happy and having a good time, but it was pretty crazy. I think it's also why I got into entrepreneurship because, you know, I was always looking for a way to do something exciting and different and unique. And that entrepreneur spirit reared its head at an early age. When his friends were outside playing sports, Kyle was looking for ways to make money. He learned quickly where he could find value and turn a profit. I think the gateway drug was when I took my dad's hand-me-down briefcase to the flea market and loaded up with G.I. Joe and He-Man figurines and then sold them to the kids in the neighborhood. And then that made way for Beanie Babies, baseball cards, comic books. I like to tell the story of 1996, the Olympics came to Atlanta. And I would put my book bag on, ride my bike to Walmart, and buy every single Olympic lapel pin I can possibly buy, and then take it down to Centennial Park and sell them. And it was basically 100% markup. I think it was cool because when I was a sophomore in college, I bought a 13000 I didn't do great things with the money, but I bought a $13,000 car with cash, and it was all from the things I had sold to get there. College meant the Georgia Institute of Technology known by most as Georgia Tech. The famed university was known for its dominance in sports 
and its role as a hub for Atlanta's burgeoning tech industry. By this time, he had branched off from the resale side hustle. He began building and selling computers. And though he knew little of Atlanta's place in the tech industry ecosystem and had no real designs on being a part of it, Kyle just wanted to keep selling things. Officially, his major was engineering, but he readily admits today that his real major was going out partying. Part of the rebellious streak his childhood health problems instilled in him was an issue with authority. It made it seem more appealing to go against what his parents or professors might have wanted him to do. So rather than study or even go to class, Kyle joined a fraternity and split his time between partying and looking for his next money-making venture. In many ways, he was making up for lost time. But chasing the authentic college experience eventually led to a turning point. I had this moment, November 29, 2002, where really my whole life changed. And basically, I got arrested for the second time for partying too much. And so then it was, okay, what is going on in this world? And I had really a life transformation at that point in time. And I came back to Georgia Tech and went straight to the management school. And I forrowed all the way out. And I had great professors and I fell in love with the coursework. And what was Atlanta texting like back when you were in school? This is sort of early 2000s, right? What was the, I guess in its infancy for sure, but what was the texting like at the time? You know, I had no idea what was going on, but I remember my, right after I graduated college, I had taken a job at an investment bank and I thought that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to buy and sell companies. But I was also in this real estate deal and the guy I was doing the deal with, a package shows up at the house. And I saw the package and it was totally not for me, but I ended up taking it to his office, which was at Georgia Tech's Advanced Technology Development Center, which was on campus. And this was part technology transfer where they take intellectual property from the school and commercialize it into businesses but it was also the center of the venture capital community in Atlanta. And I walked in the doors of this building to go meet him to give him this package. And on the left-hand side in the lobby, there was this wall and it said the Georgia Technology Hall of Fame. And it had all these individuals on there that had built great businesses like Sig Mosley, one of the prolific investors in town, Alan Mosley, who created one of the great venture funds, the CEO of MSA, which is one of the greatest software sales organizations from the 70s and 80s. And a guy named Tom Noonan, who had been the CEO of Internet Security Systems and sold to IBM for two and a half billion. And I remember seeing these people and going, what is going on in this building? I want to be part of it. This was all in the early to mid 2000s. But Kyle's career would take a turn in 2008. The economic collapse meant a slowdown in venture capital, but he was still looking to strike out on his own. After a bit of research, he became passionate about the digital signage industry and endeavor to start his own company. I had this dream that every sports bar, healthcare facility, gym, would have my TVs up inside of their facilities, running some of the content that they wanted to show, but also running ads that I would connect through the internet and sell subscriptions to. So that didn't really work out how I thought it would. And we had this giant event, and I was there, and it was one of those casino nights where people are playing blackjack and all these different games. And one of the games was a heads-up, no-limit hold'em, digital kiosk. And I sat down at this game with this other gentleman that I had just met. And we ended up playing this game for four hours straight and gambling over the top of it, 20 bucks here, 10 bucks there, and fell in love with it. As I was leaving, I looked at the sticker on the side that said Poker Tech. And Poker Tech's a manufacturer of this equipment. And I went home and I called Poker Tech and I asked them why these machines weren't in every sports bar in Atlanta. And 
Long story short, we ended up cutting a contract. I owned the territory for Atlanta, and I had these video games and 35 sports bars within 18 months from that day. Despite his success, Kyle quickly realized his new business wasn't the opportunity he'd been waiting for. He would spend hour upon hour lugging the machines across the southeast in a rented tractor trailer. His old idea of selling ads and connecting them across his network of video games was still the plan. But once again, he realized that there were technology limitations preventing that from becoming a reality. He was personally passionate, but the data showed the market was not ready. One day on a long drive from Tallahassee to Atlanta, he pulled his tractor trailer into a truck stop. He was falling asleep at the wheel. He needed a nap. Kyle realized at that moment that he needed to find another business opportunity. He was tired. Tired of working with bar owners. Tired of dealing with cash transactions. Tired of cleaning cigarette ashes off the games he carted from state to state. Before dozing off, he pulled out his phone and he typed a list of things he wanted out of his next business venture. And the first one I remember was, I'm going to be in an innovative business, not a replicative one. So that was the first one. The second one was, I'm going to validate my offering in the market, not based on my particular interest in the product, but in others' interest in the product. And I'm going to sell to uh, white-collar individuals versus blue-collar individuals and no cash in this business. So that was the manifesto that I wrote that day, which was neat because now you know we have a business that pretty much kind of applies to that. But that was one of the crazy stories from those times. When you think about your early career in general and sort of summing it all up, what were some of the biggest, I guess, takeaways or sort of the way that you thought about running a company and especially around culture, which we know is a really big part of, of what you do at SalesLoft? I mean, I think the big thing for me was I learned how to sell pretty early on. So back at that recruiting shop, I remember I had this Dell cardboard box and that was my desk. And I had three guys in one room that were watching and listening to every single cold call I made. And I was making 80 calls a day and they were judging and they were helping and they were coaching me. But I learned really early on how to speak in a way that would connect to others. And it was really cool because I got married 11 years ago and at my wedding, which was in Florida, three of the guests who drove down to the wedding were people who I had originally cold called. And so I really learned how to take an interaction that didn't exist and turn it into a warm relationship. So that was important to me. And there was this one other fun thing that I did. You know, you guys talk about sales data a lot, and we're going to get into some of that. But I went down to the Georgia Tech alumni office, and I bought the Georgia Tech alumni CD-ROM. And I just destroyed that thing on the phone. I called every single person who had graduated from Georgia Tech with a computer science or a computer engineering degree. And I built relationships with them because that was the industry we were in. But, you know, that led to learning how to sell. And then I think a lot of it after that was what's entrepreneurship all about? You know, because I had been selling and buying and kind of thought I was an entrepreneur. And so I just started reading every single book I possibly could. And I went to every event where an entrepreneur would come up and get on stage and talk about their scenario. And I think I learned a ton there. And that led up to some of the learnings around culture. I think I made six figures in my first full year out of school in recruiting. And between that CD-ROM and LinkedIn, I mean, I would have never got there. Kyle wanted to go back into tech. But this time, his process would be more data-driven. He had started reading books about how to build a company from the ground up. He met with every entrepreneur he could find at Georgia Tech's development center. And eventually he decided he was going to build and lead a startup based right there in Atlanta. 
That was the big goal. I remember putting it on a spreadsheet and sharing it with my wife. But I met this guy named David Cummings. And David was an incredible entrepreneur. You might know him. He was the founder and CEO of Pardot. So he created that business, which was acquired by Exact Target, now owned by Salesforce. And David came to one of these events and I met him and I was blown away by his outlook on business. Of course, he was focused on markets and product and technology. And, but the thing that really stood him apart from everyone else was his ideas on culture. He told me, he said, the biggest differentiator any company can have is organizational health. And as a founder, the one thing you have the most control over is culture. And so that led me to meeting David, getting to know him, and deciding I wanted to be in business with David Cummings. So we sat down for lunch one day, and that's when we launched SalesLoft. He needed to find out as much about their customers as possible. Their product was targeted towards sales and marketing leaders at B2B SaaS companies. Kyle says the plan was to get to know those potential customers as intimately as he could. In an ideal world, he could bring them all together in a single place and have a captive audience. So he decided to do just that. Kyle and David launched B2B Camp. So let's set up a conference. And it'll be like that product conference. It's Uncamp. I don't know if you've heard of it, but there's no designated speakers. So everyone gets there. And if you want to speak, you got to pitch to the audience on why you should be a speaker. So we did the same thing with marketing and sales professionals. We ran it for a few years. It was awesome. And we had a lot of fun. And, you know, I built a lot of relationships and sold some software through it. How did SalesLoft come about? You've met David Cummings. You're going to start this thing that becomes SalesLoft. What was that process? Yeah, so I knew David through the community and I had been following his blog. And Cummings has this odd claim to fame where he wrote a blog post every single day for 10 years straight. And I must have been the biggest reader of this thing. And I commented at least 50 times. And so we built a relationship digitally, but I met him in person. And then I got a call from a fraternity brother that I had met back in 2000. His name is Craig Hyde. And Craig said, hey, I'm really crushing it in the sales gig, but there's this guy named David Cummings, and I think he wants to start a business with me. Should I do it? And I remember telling him, don't pass go, don't collect 200, you know, just go immediately to work with David. That's a great idea. And so he launched the company Rigor, which is a great SaaS business here in Atlanta. And as I was really starting to get in the mode of, you know, ready to create another business and really go in all the way, I remember going, well, David started a business with Craig. Why wouldn't he start one with me? So I set up a lunch and we sat down together and I'd thought it through. I knew we were going to sit down. There's all those pleasantries that people normally do. How are you? The weather, the sports, whatever, the Falcons. And I sat down and I go, David, I want to start a business and I want you in. That was the first thing out of my mouth. And he goes, okay, I'm in, let's do it. So that was the whole extent of me getting an angel investor and, and starting the business. But that was the beginning and it was awesome. And so what we did was we went to the Pardot offices. So I opened a laptop inside of Pardot and we shared a Google Doc spreadsheet on business ideas, and that's how we came about SalesLoft. So that's kind of, you know, up to that point. What were some of the other ideas on that spreadsheet? One of them I wanted to do was like a DocuSign or HelloSign or EchoSign. So that was one idea. There was a search engine for companies. So put in a bunch of parameters and out will just come companies, domains, contact information. It was all around sales because I had been a salesperson my whole life. And, and David, we knew we were going to do it in SaaS. So it was basically technology for sales. And we ended up, I ended up building four or five products with this company before we even, you know, got traction with one. Tell us in the early days, what your day to day was like, and especially as it related to sort of where did you start when you started looking for data around like, who's out there? Who can I talk to? You know, what was the starting point as you started to think about the market, the TAM and what you were going after? 
Yeah, so after David sold Pardot for $100 million, we started the Atlanta Tech Village. And I say we, but it's really David. You know, he started the Atlanta Tech Village, but I was the first tenant of the village. And it's now the epicenter of Atlanta technology. So we had tons of salespeople and entrepreneurs in that building. And I had this live place to just experience what they were going through. And I knew I was building software for sellers. So I would look over the shoulders of these reps all the time and find out what their problems were. And the first product that we launched that took off was called Sales Law Prospector. And the way that came about is I would watch these reps and they were either, they needed to get marketing and sales data on the people that they would communicate with. And there were really only two ways they were doing it. One, they were paying for one of these subscription services like a data.com or a Hoover's or something else in the marketplace. And they complained so many times about how inaccurate and bad it was. The other one was they were going to LinkedIn and they were copying and pasting the first name, last name, company name, title. They were guessing the email address, guessing the phone number and throwing it in the CRM. So we created a product that was a Chrome extension that would replicate that process. That was the first successful product that we created. And that then led, of course, to us building other things that became the core of what we do today. So how did that first version of Sales Loft or the first iteration inform what would ultimately be what Sales Loft is today? So we were watching these reps and I had seen what great reps were doing and spent a ton of time with them. What I saw was that the best sales professionals were identifying the target accounts that they wanted to go after that they thought they'd have the most success with. They were finding out who the people were at those organizations, and they were running a cadence of communications, phone calls, emails, social touch points, even offline communications. And they were holding themselves accountable to this rhythm of that communication. But they had to use all of these systems to actually make it happen. I saw spreadsheets, Salesforce tasks, you had the phone, the email system, calendar, just everything else, all the objects in the CRM. And I said, we can make this an actual process and we can build workflow software that will mimic these actions. And so that was when we really had the idea for what we called at the time Sales Loft Cadence, but what has become today the sales engagement platform. As Kyle saw it, Sales Loft was a data company. They were providing contact information that sellers could use to reach their potential leads. But something was still missing. He had a broader vision that saw his company help sellers develop deeper relationships. He wanted his customers to be able to use SalesLoft as a tool to help them approach and nurture their buyers with sincerity and authenticity. So imagine his disappointment when he realized that many were just taking the data SalesLoft provided to blast out as many cold emails as they could. He hated thinking of SalesLoft as being little more than a facilitator for spam. I wanted to do something different. I wanted to do something that would really add value and really bring that authenticity to sales. And so that's where we started to come up with this idea for the sales engagement platform. It really came from this old data product. And quite frankly, the data product wasn't something that I owned and controlled. It was LinkedIn data. They weren't happy with it, right? And we didn't have great retention because One of the things I learned from the gentleman who was running data.com at the time, he said, it's best practices for customers to switch their data providers. I go, wow, we're getting some of that. And we were month to month on this thing. So our customers would pay us $1,000 a month, $2,000 a month. But some of them would pay us, use all the contacts, cancel, and then come back two months later and pay us again. So it was this crazy scenario. So all these factors led to, I wanted a platform where I could control the user experience. I could guide them through the workflow. I didn't have to depend on third parties. And that's what we found in Sales Off Cadence and with the sales engagement platform. In late 2014, 
three years after starting the company, the SalesLoft team finally launched Cadence. For Kyle, it was a realization of his original dream. He was helping companies bring more authenticity to their sales process. And right out the gate, the results were staggering. Within a year, the company's revenue jumped from 200,000 to 2.5 million. And more importantly, SalesLoft was growing in other less tangible ways as well. What was really important was establishing an organizational health and rhythm that would help me attract incredible talent, inspire them, coach and motivate them to turn around and serve the customer. So I've got this really deep-seated belief that the biggest differentiation a business can have is its organizational health. And that means you've got a clearly delineated vision. We talked about a vision of a world where the seller is loved by the buyers they serve. Mission, where we're empowering companies to enable their reps to deliver the customer with that incredible experience, but do it at scale that maximizes revenue. And then core strategies, OKRs, core values, the rhythm of how you meet in the organization. I have sent an email to every employee of the company, the investors and mentors, every single Sunday night since 2012. And I've never missed one. I think once or twice when I had babies, I had my co-founder send them, right? So we worked together on that. And so those are some of the things that have been really important. And that has just stayed through the whole journey. And it's allowed us to bring great people on. So when I think about the journey of SalesLoft in that middle time period, it's bringing some of these incredible folks on board to the organization that are turning around and serving the customer. How has that changed? Thinking back to your first dream was, I'm going to have a company with 50 people. SalesLoft is bigger than that now. How does maintaining and growing organizational health change through those phases? Yeah, well, we're 470 people today across the Atlanta, San Francisco, New York, London, and Guadalajara offices. So it's a little bit different, but I didn't even remember that I put that 50 thing down on a spreadsheet. My wife and I found that when we were like 300 employees. So that's how I know that. But I think I was just thinking as big as I could at the time. I think a lot of things change. The biggest one is the empowerment of our staff. Back in the day, I would do all of the things myself as much as I possibly could. And today I've got this totally different philosophy, which is the number one thing that I can do as a CEO is to have incredible alignment at the ELT level. One of the things that really changed my perspective on leadership is when I decided that I was going to have a bias to approve the decisions of my reports. What I mean by that is if you came to me, Kyle, and you said, you know, we're going to go left or right here. Which way do you think? I'm going to go, which way do you think and why? And I'm going to ask you a couple questions and you're going to say left and I'm going to be biased to approve that. And what that does is it helps build you up as a leader. It gives you the empowerment and inspires you to make decisions. It allows you to make mistakes and learn from those decisions. And it quite frankly allows me to be freed up to do other things. One recent project that Kyle is particularly proud of is the acquisition of the Guadalajara-based transcription startup Note Ninja, a move that helps SalesLoft to expand its geographic reach and help sellers get deeper insights from their sales calls. This solved another problem Kyle saw for his customers in the marketplace. Buyers had gotten more sophisticated. They'd become better informed. So the problem for SalesLoft became, how can we deliver an amazing sales experience for each individual customer while still making revenue repeatable and predictable? And so that's the code we had set out to crack and what sales engagement was doing for us. And as we saw that market get bigger and bigger, we started to have an ecosystem of third parties that were integrated into our platform. We'd host our annual conferences. 
and they'd come out and sponsor and show up. And what we found is there was this sub-market brewing in the sales engagement world. And I'll call it conversation intelligence, right? I mean, this is a category today. And there's great companies that are focused on this solely. And then there's us who have it as part of our portfolio. And one of these individually focused companies was Note Ninja. And we just came to realize this would be a great business to be part of SalesLoft. And so we ended up acquiring Note Ninja. They have two incredible founders. Their CTO had moved to Guadalajara, Mexico, born in the US, but moved to Guadalajara to lead the engineering efforts there. And his name's Austin, he's an incredible guy. And so we ended up having that Guadalajara office, but we saw conversation intelligence as a, just a massive ad and a part of the sales engagement platform. The big thing for me, we started using Note Ninja before we bought it. And I had an ELT offsite at my tangerine farm down in Florida. And I had a bunch of executives on my patio. We're drinking beer and just shooting the shit. And I pull up on my screen, I plug my laptop in and pull up a conversation intelligence recording for one of our important customers and play it in front of the whole ELT. And none of them were on that call. And we could have read the reps notes if they had put them in CRM, but nothing was like hearing it out of the voice of the customer. And that's the moment I made the decision that this is going to be a business we're going to acquire. There's cadence, there's conversation intelligence, there's all these improvements. And SalesLoft is actually moving from a system that allows a seller to work on data to do actions and is now generating its own data. And that it seems like that's changing the direction in terms of how does intelligence and the data generated from SalesLoft bring about some of these changes? Yeah, you're right. I've always thought about the data that we had already in sales engagement. Because if you think about CRM and Salesforce as an example, they're built on an old Oracle database and the data is the things that the reps put in, right? But with SalesLoft, we have all the phone conversations, all the emails, the templates, how many emails were sent to which persona on which days at which times in conjunction with what other mediums of communication and who responded and what's the sentiment and what did that lead to in terms of opportunities. And so we've got these hundreds of millions of data points and they're tied to whether they were successful or not. Kyle says he is always focused on how customers are using data with SalesLoft's platform. He says it's been exciting to see all of the content personalization matrices that exist in the marketplace. One recent push has been to help sales teams tailor their communications to each persona they might be interacting with inside a given company. Once again, the idea was to make every action more authentic. I think what we're getting through here in the world of sales is we're moving away from this spammy, batch and blast, everyone gets the same email type content. Because if you're the buyer, the buyer is the best spam filter in the world, right? They know immediately when they open an email, whether a robot sent this or whether a human sent this. Companies that are sending the same emails over and over and over again with no variation, their recipients are hitting the spam button and it's hurting their sender score, it's hurting their reputation. And so the companies that are getting really smart about the characteristics of their buyers, and I just gave you a two-dimensional one, I've seen customers with seven different dimensions that are chopping and dicing the data and then injecting the content to be specific with people that fit all those characteristics. There's one other play that I'm seeing being run that's really, really slick. And I'll just describe the way we do it. We learned it from a customer, but I'll tell you my side of the story because I can tell you all the details without asking permission. I've got this cadence and the way this thing works is the minute a rep closes a deal above a certain size, it triggers an automation rule. That automation rule sends an email, not to the customer, but to the rep who closed the deal, and it's from me. And that email says something like, hey, Kyle, congratulations on bringing company XYZ in. 
I'm super excited to meet them and I would like to get connected to share best practices, my visions for them, and the lessons I've learned in our thousands of implementations. So now the rep takes that and the rep has usually been blocked in going all the way up to the top. Maybe they've had a conversation or two with the C-level. Maybe that person came in late to a meeting or signed a contract, but they didn't really build a relationship with them. Sometimes they did, and that's awesome, but oftentimes they didn't. So they use this email now as a way to bridge that. They forward my email to the buyer, to the C-level and say, hey, see below, my, my CEO would really like to connect with you. And then I reply back to that. I drop a template in, but I personalize it a little bit because these are big deals and they're not coming through you know, all the time. And I ask for a meeting. I drop the calendar in, of course, from the system and they accept that meeting. And now we're in Zoom room land, right? So now I got something on my calendar. It's a Zoom meeting. It's on my Zoom room. So I've got the iPad on my desk and it shows me my calendar of all my meetings. And I just come in and click the button. I don't bring a notepad. I don't bring a pen. I haven't even done any research because I want to understand from them, you know, what's their side. And I'll do a few things. I'll thank them for their business. That's always the first one. I'll ask for feedback on the experience with us so that we can improve. And then I'll start getting into some best practices and ideas that I've learned. And I'll ask questions along the way. And what I'm trying to find out is what's unique about this business. What is unique to their implementation that my team's going to want to know as they go through this? What's happening here is that we're just really delivering the customer with an incredible experience. We're staying connected through the whole organization. And now I have a relationship with them. The implementation person has a relationship with them. And so does the seller. And we found wild success in this. In fact, I've been doing this for about 15 months. There's not a ton of data, but zero cancellations of a customer that went through this process. How many of these calls have you done now? It's about two a week, I would say except for the end of the quarter. I get a bunch at the end of the quarters and end of months. Yeah, so I've had a bunch. I try to do two, three a week. As you think about some of those more exotic uses of data, what are some of the maybe the craziest things that you've seen out there, whether it's your own implementation of SalesLoft or your customer's implementation that really blew your mind the first time you looked at it? Some of the stuff that we did together was incredible. And I love this work where we're going through and creating images that are specific to the customer and who they are and what they care about and putting that in the content that they're receiving. Because again, we want our customers to send emails and make phone calls that shock their customers in a positive way, that almost create this must-react system for the buyer, right? When our sellers are out on the floor communicating, I want them to say something that the buyer says, I got to listen to this person. That's what we did with our visual prospecting work. That's more time thinking outside the box and less time dealing with the low-hanging, and often misleading fruit you can find in the more obvious places. Kyle says he's become frustrated with what he calls the noise on LinkedIn, where what can pass as data often doesn't pass muster upon closer scrutiny. I've seen a lot of posts that say, the data tells us X. And when you really dive into this thing, it's like a survey of 13 people. And so I started to get frustrated at this word, the data, the data tells us, data says this, data says that. To me, it's not the data said that, it's my 13-person survey said that. It's my report of 100 users that did this thing, right? And of course, the more you've defined where that data is actually coming from, the more I can trust or understand what you're saying. Talk to us a little bit about where you think the world of sales and the world of data is going. If we play it forward 10 years, what does this look like for SalesLoft and for the industry in general? Of course, there's Jeff Bezos, and he says, it's one thing to think about what will change in the future, But what's a smarter thing to think about is what won't change. So I think about that as well. But, you know, for me, I think let's start by going out a few years. What we've seen is that this new trend that I'm starting to recognize and I'm hearing these words like tool nausea, 
my sales stack, my marketing stack is just overwhelmed. If you've got five solutions that a customer thinks they need for sales engagement or sales communications, then they now have five sales cycles, five security reviews, legal reviews, data privacy reviews, implementations, integrations, configurations, trainings, customer success managers, and invites to your annual conference. And the whole idea here is companies don't want to go to all of these different providers. Is there anything that you think will stay separate and not consolidate? Yeah, I think the CRM is a pretty good bet to stay the CRM. Some of the CRM providers obviously are bringing some of these other characteristics or categories into play. I don't want to be a CRM and I don't want to be a CRM company. So I'm going to stay focused on what we do and just be heads down, make it happen. That's an interesting one. I think marketing automation has kind of held their ground. Customer support has held their ground. I think sales engagement is a category alike to those. Now, the other question you would ask is the long term, right? What's going to happen there? And I think one of the things that won't change is that customers' demands are continually increasing. We talked about this earlier. They've got incredibly big expectations of what their providers are going to be doing for them. Those expectations are only going up. And so sellers need to make it easier and easier and easier for their buyers to buy. But if you look way out, we'll get crazy on these predictions. It's going to be a marketplace. It's going to be a marketplace where people come to buy and sell. Now, Will the $1 billion cloud offering that the Department of Defense bought recently ever be on a marketplace? Probably not, right? But we've seen what Amazon has done for all the little widgets we buy in our lives. And so if you look at that as a curve between like buying Kleenex on Amazon and buying a billion dollars worth of cloud software, that curve is moving further and further up the scale to where customers can buy bigger and bigger, more complex things without having lots of interactions with the seller. And I think that's where sales is going and what I'm excited to be a part of. That was Kyle Porter. From his early days as a road warrior selling video poker kiosks to his place today as one of the foremost leaders in tech sales, the one constant in his life has been change. More accurately, it has been the constant and often dramatic swings he's experienced between old-fashioned human input and verifiable data-driven results. The physical energy he gave to his fledgling video game business pushed him to innovate. At SalesLoft, he developed a successful data-focused product only to come to the realization that it lacked authenticity. As soon as he enabled the human side of sales with data-based automation, then he was able to find the equilibrium he had always been searching for. Support for this podcast is brought to you by Clearbit. Clearbit is a marketing data engine that helps you deeply understand your customers and build a hyper-efficient growth engine. We've known the team at Clearbit for about four years now and use Clearbit data for all our own projects. Just about all of our customers rely on Clearbit data to cut through the noise and focus their go-to-market teams. We've seen so many examples of Clearbit really helping their customers better understand their sales and marketing funnel. And some of their customers are able to get really creative with their sales plays. For example, we worked with Segment, one of the world's leading customer data platforms, They're using everything from Clearbit Reveal to understand which companies are on their site from anonymous traffic, Clearbit Technographics to understand their technology profile and how good of a fit they would be for Segment, and Clearbit Prospector to identify the ideal contacts at each company. Thank you to Clearbit for sponsoring this episode. To learn more about Clearbit, visit clearbit.com. Thanks for joining us. To learn more, check out groundtruthpod.com for other Ground Truth episodes and a deeper dive into each story. Ground Truth is a production of Dogpatch Advisors.
written by Jack Buer from Campfire Labs, sound engineering and studio space provided by TJ Bonaventura and Julian Lewis from StudioPod, editing and mixing by Noda Lab, and video production by Nick Shaheen from Above Treeline Studios.